Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Calzi, and I'm so glad that you are here today. If, you, if today's your first day, um, I think you are here for a really powerful wrap-up to a three-week message that we've been going through throughout the month of February. Uh, a, a message that I think if you really are willing to kind of lean in, even if you're not sure about the whole spiritual thing in general, that this has the power to change your life. It's a, a series that is really about a, a topic that maybe, quite honestly, would be a little surprising for some of us. It's integrity. This idea that in the midst of all the talk about dreaming and doing and YOLO and your best life now and you only have one life and all the push to, to do and accomplish and to, to read and you know, get the degree and all of that, what can be lost in the process, if you do all those things, is that if you miss the who you are becoming, not just what you're doing, all of it can end up ultimately in vain. And that the goal for this series is really to kind of pair this idea that we start off the beginning of the year with often of like, this is going to be my best year. I'm going to finally overcome this and I'm finally going to accomplish this and I'm going to check that box on my to-do list or I'm going to go to that place and do that thing and buy that car. But oftentimes on the box isn't who am I going to become. And this series is really intended to help you with that. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at that process in a a very broad sense. And today I want to take you to a very natural starting point for the conversation, May 1940. Uh, This man here is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill is a very interesting character in history. If you ever want to just kind of chuckle, read about Winston Churchill. He came into the prime minister role in Great Britain in May of 1940, about eight months after Britain had declared war on Germany in the midst of World War II. A crazy despot named Hitler had decided that the European continent was too small to contain his aspirations and had decided that he wanted the English Isles too. And so, Churchill steps into that and with a series of stirring speeches lays out the plan that we're never ever going to surrender. That's all I have to offer is blood, toil, sweat, and tears. Actually, I have a mug that's got some of his words on it. And when you drink it, you just feel a little bit tougher. When you drink coffee in that morning, you're like, that's right, all I have today is blood and sweat and tears. That's what I'm giving the world, right? I mean, you just kind of were inspired by him. Very interesting, eclectic individual. In the first year of being prime minister, um, you had the Dunkirk situation, which is not just a great movie, but it's also a historical event, and where uh, British soldiers were trapped just across the channel in France, and the British people rallied and mobilized their boats to help evacuate the soldiers. Not only that, you also have the beginning of what's called the Blitz and the Battle of Britain. I mean, it's a devastating first year. But many historians would say without even blinking an eye that he was probably one of the most instrumental figures in all of World War II. And the reason he's one of my heroes, in spite of his ridiculous eccentricities, like weirdness that we don't have time for, but... uh, would encourage you to read any book about him, okay? Seriously, I've read like five or six about Winston Churchill. Really is a hero of mine. 
But what stands out about him, the reason that he would be considered a hero is because of his choices. Now, here's what I I don't know about you, but I already know about you. If I were to sit down and ask you questions about your hero, that what would probably stand out and eventually come to the top would be their choices. The decisions they made, the things they did, the way they took a stand, And if I were to ask you about the people who've been most destructive in your life, it would also center around their choices and the way it impacted you and the way it impacted your life. This kind of summarizes, in some ways, the verse that we've been looking at throughout this month, right, in Proverbs 11.3, that the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. This idea that integrity is essential. And Andy Stanley, who was been a huge influence in my life, who's been a distant mentor to me, has, I think, a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, definition of integrity that's helped to guide us in this series. And it's essentially this, that integrity is doing what you ought to, even if it costs you. That ultimately, integrity is about a cost that hurts, but yet you make the choice anyway. And the series around integrity is really essential. And to get to the heart of choices is at the heart of integrity. Now, I wish I had more than three weeks to unpack integrity for you. I don't. There's so much that we could dive into from character formation around becoming more like Jesus, which is why this Tuesday we start the 112 because the 112 is about that character formation, about that conforming to become like Christ. And this is something that we're going to have both an online and an on-site version happening Tuesday, beginning this Tuesday night, 7 p.m. And then mid-April, for those, it's, it's an on-site only. Um, it's going to be kind of an addition, because every time I do the 112, I have to modify it, because I'm always trying to make it better. But one of the things I'm doing this year to the 112 is actually giving you um, a deeper introduction because I think the last two years has shown us that life is complicated. And what I want to do is lean into the faith conversation a little bit more with you and on-site only because it's not going to be recorded because I want us to have a safe forum to be able to ask questions and dialogue and kind of lean into it. I'm actually going to do something that I may end up regretting that will make probably some of you mad at me, but I'm actually adding um, a faith component around how do we, with through the lens of our faith, look at issues like the, what we've seen over the last two years, from politics to debate around vaccinations to race to all the kind of core critical things that we've been wrestling with societally. How do we, with the Christian faith, have a lens to view the world? So it's going to be on-site only, and it's only for people who've gone through the 112. So that's my, if you want to have an opportunity to be really mad at me, um, then I would encourage you to sign up for the 112. The on-site only special kind of like essentially ethics and all these other different components. How do we think about government? What do we think about Christian nationalism? And how does God and country fit into the equation? And What about this whole thing around the word evangelical and what's been happening in our culture with what's been playing out with Trump and make America great again? Like, I'm telling you, this thing is ridiculous. And so 
if you're interested in that, um, then you've got to sign up for the 112 to get to that because it really will be only for those who've walked through the weeks preceding of us learning how to unpack Scripture and really understand the Christian faith because with that proper lens, we can actually lean into the difficult, the, the quagmire, the craziness of all of the last two years and do it not with here's what to think, but here's how to think. So really excited about that. Um, and another thing that's Im- impactful for our integrity is who we're around. I don't have time to give you a series for that, but we are kicking off next week the beginning of a, a movement that I'm really excited about. We have a women's event called Freedom next Saturday night, 7 p.m., and this is going to be an amazing night. Um, a good friend of mine, a, a couple that's been friends to Jenny and I for almost two decades now, which I hate to say out loud because it makes me realize I'm old, so I met them when I was one or two, um, clearly, and um, but they're going to be here next weekend. They're going to be kicking off a new series that um, is going to be so powerful around relationships, but Saturday night, we're going to have a special women's event, and a good friend, Katie Walters, is going to be kicking off that event. If you, um, you don't have to know Katie, but you're going to love Katie when you meet her. Um, Katie's an entrepreneur. Uh, she's a visionary. Uh, when we have conversations, we talk strategy. I mean, she's um, really upending and doing some incredible things at a global level. She's also a mom of seven, which I still don't have a box for, um, and they both look like supermodels. Even though we've known each other for a long time, and I clearly do not look like a supermodel, so I haven't figured out what they're doing that I haven't done over the last 20 years, but they're doing something, and it's working. And so she's going to be our guest speaker, and we're going to be kicking off um, some opportunities for women to gather around, to have conversations, to support, and to encourage one another. So I'm really excited about that. You can sign up for that at EncounterChurch.com forward slash women. Next Saturday night, 7 p.m., it's a free event. And this is a perfect thing if you've been trying to figure out, hey, I've got some friends who, I've got some women friends who I'd love to invite to the church. This would be a perfect opportunity because it's going to be a powerful night. So, um, but I can't deal with those two things. That's why we created those two. So what I want to do today is give you, I think, one of the most powerful tools you can ever have in your tool belt when it comes to becoming a person of integrity. It's a tool that, goes beyond just the discipline that these two opportunities I shared would, do, would present. This is a tool that's really designed to help you avoid some of the deepest regrets that you could ever have in your life. And just like Dallas did last week with the conversation around food, I want to have a conversation about food from a different story and a different moment that both, like Dallas's conversation with you last Sunday, and mine with this Sunday, it seems really small, but it has significant, significant potential impact for your life. It's found in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is named after Daniel, who is the author. Daniel is an incredible young man who, over the course of five decades plus in government service, outlines and documents for us a book that is filled with so much wisdom and insight for our life today. But I want to begin at the very beginning of the book of Daniel to set the tone for the conversation we're going to have today. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah at the time, Israel was split into two different nations. They'd gone through a civil war. Um, It would have been like what happened in America with the civil war, but 
had the South actually won, there would have been two separate nations on the same continent, same old kind of square footage. This is what happens in Israel, that you have two separate nations that split from each other, and, and they kind of coexist with a little bit of tension. Jehoiakim is leading the smaller of the nation um, called Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar, who is probably a name that you haven't heard since perhaps seventh grade, um, he's one of those great kind of conquering kings of the ancient world. He comes into Jerusalem and he besieges it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had been a general in the Babylonian army. He had been dealing with one of the biggest enemies that Babylon had at the time, which was Egypt. And if you're familiar with kind of geography, Egypt and Israel are right next door to each other. It's essentially a day trip today if you were to travel there. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes into Israel to continue the conquering, and he besieges Jerusalem, which is essentially cutting off the food supply and stopping the flow of resources that essentially causes the city from, to kind of fall with, within. This is still an, a very modern military strategy that's employed. And it says that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand, being Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, so essentially his chief of staff, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing an aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, as a side note, this is the exact same description my wife often gives about me. So it's kind of interesting to read this in the Bible and be like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what Jenny says about me to her friends when I'm not around, of course, right? And so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar is a really, really devious leader. He knows that it's not enough just to militarily defeat a country. You have to destroy them intellectually, culturally, spiritually. You have to completely break their identity, not just their walls. So how does he do this? Well, he destroys the leadership base, but then he goes and he has the chief of staff find the people who are the brightest, the sharpest, and the best in the next generation. And he pulls all of them into his training school. These are the people who have the potential to rise up and lead future revolutions, but Nebuchadnezzar knows that one of the best ways to destroy a nation is to make the generation after them part of your nation. So they're forbidden to speak the language that would, they would have grown up hearing their moms and dads speak. They're forbidden to write it. And they're brought into Babylon, into the king's palace, and they were taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians with the goal that they become Babylonians. Because language is powerful. Language shapes you and forms you. Right? I've had conversations with first-generation immigrants in America, and one of the tensions that I often hear is they talk about the second generation and the loss of the mother tongue and the tension it creates because there's a sense that they've lost who we were and are because they've lost the language. And this is, Nebuchadnezzar understands that tension, and so he makes them Babylonians in their language and the literature. Not only that, the king assigns them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. So he's making sure that they're eating because culture is bound up in the food that you eat. 
And so he's shaping and forming them from all different facets and all different sides, making them Babylonians. Now, you need to know that in the ancient world, there was an obsession around food that would be akin to perhaps maybe people's Instagram feeds when they go to restaurants they've never been to and they're snapping pictures of what they're eating. But it wasn't about, hey, let me show off what I have today. The obsession was, will I eat today? In the ancient world, when you woke up, the very first question you had is, where's my food going to come from? This is not unlike a lot of third world countries today. But this was the reality. Food insecurity was a given for life in the ancient world. And so the idea that they were given a daily amount of food from the king's table is extraordinary. This is the best of the best type of food. This is incredible, generous portions of food. But bound up in this is a bit of a dilemma, which we'll get to. It says they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. So essentially, they're going to to the Hogwarts Academy for Babylonians, right? This magical place where the food flows in a way that it doesn't flow for anyone else in the world at the time. They're exposed to the brightest and the best. The Babylonian Empire was an incredible place. They, They had one of the ancient wonders of the world. Nebuchadnezzar had a commanding army that had conquered a lot of the known world at the time. I mean, these people had arrived. And this three-year graduate program ensured that if they completed it for the rest of their life, they would continue to have access to the king's table and to have influence with the king of the most powerful nation in the world. This is a pretty sweet gig. But among them was a small group of people that the book of Daniel is going to focus on. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To the name Hananiah, he gave him Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego, Abednego. These are probably names that if you grew up in church, you're somewhat familiar with. You're not familiar with Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. You're probably familiar with the Babylonian version, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Because there's a, a moment in the book of Daniel that comes a couple chapters later around a fiery furnace and a stand that they make. But you need to understand that the food and the name is telling you something about ultimately what Daniel's about to do. In the ancient world, because of food insecurity, what often happened was that you did everything you conceivably could possibly think about to guarantee that you had food, which meant even including worshiping the God who could provide that food. If you were to kind of peruse through polytheistic religions, religions that have gods that are kind of multiple, kind of a pantheon, what you'll notice is that oftentimes the most important gods in the ancient world in polytheistic religions were gods who granted fertility and who gods who granted the harvest and allowed the crops to grow and the animals to reproduce. Like those were the gods that were the central gods to worship and adore. Because if you got on their good side, that meant good things would happen. And because food insecurity was the biggest insecurity you had, oftentimes you were drawn to those specific deities. 
Now, you wouldn't see that, but embedded in the names of these men is allusions to Marduk, which is this great Babylonian god that Nebuchadnezzar is convinced is the reason he's had so much victory as a general. Nebuchadnezzar is convinced that he's the reason that when he sits at his table, there is a bountiful harvest. And this is all happening underneath the surface, which is why we see, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. This backdrop sets the stage for this very simple decision Daniel makes to say, I can't pollute or stain myself by eating food from the table, that just my presence and my consumption is an endorsement of Marduk and is an affirmation that Marduk is the reason all these other things have happened. But let's hit pause on that. Let me tell you about Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein is probably one of the greatest thinkers, physicists in the last 150 years. He's impacted your life and my life in ways that we really don't fully comprehend. He wrote a series of papers, all three of them in the same year, <clears throat> kind of like Dolly Parton writing Jolene and, and I Will Always Love You on the same day. Um, he writes all three of these in the same year, all three of them Nobel Prize. He, he looks at Brownian motion. He looks at uh, just the nature of light and relativity and gravity. He, all of this in the same year. Like, brilliant guy. Why working as a clerk in a patent office? But the reason Einstein could sit there and work in that Swiss office and, and write three of the most significant papers in physics kickstarts a whole whole series of disciplines that will flow out of his, his realizations is that he would sit there and he would do what eventually would be called these thought experiments. One of his most famous thought experiments, this is something he did even as a little boy when he got a compass, he talked about being handed the compass and trying to imagine the invisible waves or whatever happens in the air that shapes and moves the needle. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, magnetism is the most magical thing to me. Right? It, this invisible thing that moves this dial. And as a little boy, he was obsessed with that. And he would try to visualize what was making it move. And he formed this ability to have these thought experiments, this vivid imagination that would allow him to create and imagine. And one day, sitting in the office, he began to imagine what if he could catch up with the very, very front of a light wave? Like, what would it look like? And he has all these counterintuitive realizations about that because the Swiss are obsessed with clocks. And, and there's this genuine Swiss obsession around clocks. That's not marketing at the time. Like, and he's, he's in this nation that he's constantly reading these clock patents that are coming across his desk. And he realizes that time is relative. That the speed of light is a constant, but there's this relativity that plays out in space and time are bound together. All of this insanity. And he does all of this through what's called a thought experiment. Never leaves the desk, but his mind does. Now, thought experiments are probably one of my favorite things to do. Uh, in fact, you'd probably be terrified if you ever entered in my head. 
and you saw the thought experiments that I run um, because I oftentimes just will sit there and think about ridiculous, absurd things. One of the things, um, actually, that a, a, our team saw a couple years ago when we were doing the egg drop was this thought experiment that I absolutely love called a premortem. A premortem is the opposite of a postmortem, which is a medical evaluation to figure out what happened that killed someone. It's post-death. And the idea is what led to the death of the individual. A premortem is the exact opposite. It's like what could cause the death of this individual. So I walked in prior to our egg drop in 2019, the last one that we held since the one that we're going to have in a couple months here at Encounter Church, which I'm really excited about. Um, and I said, hey, and I flashed on the screen for them a tweet and a Facebook post that talked about how completely horrible the egg drop was and all the horrible things that happened that day. And they're all looking at it, and it looked like an actual post from the event, but it was dated the day after the event, which was still at this point about six weeks away. Now, some of them will still come up to me like, that was the most terrifying meeting I've ever been a part of my entire life because we sat around and we identified 10 things that could make that event lead to that type of social media post. But what came out of that was we, we identified 10 different things that if we dealt with them would get us as close as possible to having one of the best events that we've ever had before. Now, Premortem is absolutely my favorite thought experiment. I do it all the time. And one of my favorite things is to have someone do a premortem with themselves. And I ask them the question, hey, you've been tasked with the very important mission to destroy you. You know more about this subject than any other subject. You know about their weaknesses, you know about their strengths, you know about their temptations, their liabilities. And the question is essentially, how would you undo you? How would you destroy you? In fact, I was doing life coaching for a friend of mine who was transitioning into a new role and a new job. And he was starting a new business. And part of the life coaching, I, I, during lunch, I said to him, hey, we've talked about all these different things that you're going to do. Let's talk about what could undo you. And we had this fascinating conversation around the things that could undo him. And maybe it's the temptation to find relief in a substance. Maybe it's the drift towards flirtatious comments with the coworker. Maybe it's that tendency to overspend each month and to live on 101% of what you make, not 100% of what you make. I don't know you, but you know you. And if you ran the thought experiment, how would you undo you? How would you destroy everything that you've built? What choices would you make? You probably have an insight to one of the most powerful questions and answers that can actually lead you to better decisions and fewer regrets. This thought experiment, this premortem, this simple question, how would you undo you, is something you should spend time thinking about. I know how I would destroy me. 
I know what would probably have to happen. And then you identify those things. And what eventually you find is that you're not too far off from where Daniel is. I mean, it gives you a little bit more insight to why Daniel does this. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food. Is that Daniel understood that my name, my very name points to Elohim, Yahweh, God. My very name is the declaration over my life about who I want to be. And if I choose to eat this food, it would undo me. So what does he do? Before the filet is ever put in front of him with the little trappings in the salad and the aroma fills his nose, before the plate is ever slid in front of him, he decides what he's going to do. He's not going to eat it. And it says he resolved not to defile. Like this is a predecision, a commitment. And this is actually shouldn't, this shouldn't surprise us. We, we all at a, at a deep level understand that predecisions lead to better decisions, don't we? If you're trying to lose weight, it's better to have a nutritional plan before you start. Right? If you're going to have a great marriage, what do you do? What's at the center point of a wedding? It's a predecision. It's not just that you're saying yes to that other person. You're saying no to the other potential 3.5 billion other people. It's like long before she ever walks in or he ever comes in, I'm going to say no. Because I've already said yes. It's at the heart of great parenting. Because one day, surprise, a human being is thrust into your arms with no instruction manual, nothing but needs, and what appears to be an allergic level response to sleeping. And how do you survive those really difficult first 25 years of their life? You have a predecision. You're already going to love them. Before they even do anything for you or against you. You already love them. Period. Because predecisions lead to better decisions. And when you understand what can undo you, what decision you would make that would end up making your life a living hell, then you're in a position to predecide today to avoid that disaster tomorrow. If you want to be a person who's marked by generosity, then you predecide when you don't have anything to be generous. A lot of people will say, oh, I'll be generous when I have something. It's like, no, you'll never be generous when you have something. When I became a Christian and I discovered this whole concept of tithe, which was just a novel thing to me, that you, this idea that God gives you 100% and that you give him 10% through the local church, back, it was really easy at the time because I made no money, right? And I just decided, well, if that's what God wants, that's what I'm going to do. 
And that pre-decision made my life so much easier because now I make so much more I made when I was in grad school. But I've never, ever second-guessed that pre-decision I made that day, even though it's become such a bigger number that I almost give away more today than I made an entire year those days. Why? Because it was a predecision. And it's led to a better life because of it. And that the predecisions that you need to make, it may involve how you use the web or how you use social media. It may be where and how you respond to certain coworkers. It may be how you decide, you pre-think what you're going to do in those moments. When I know I'm going to have a difficult conversation with someone, a conversation that might honestly make me want to slap them, I decide beforehand. Now, you've never wanted to slap anybody, I'm sure, okay? So let me just tell you personally from my own journey. I will decide beforehand what they would say that would make me want to slap them. I'm not joking. I literally have Evernote files filled with conversations I've potentially had with some of you. And Yes. And I've decided ahead of time what you could say to me that would infuriate me, that would make me want to lash out, that would make me want to pull out the claws. And I go ahead and decide if this, then that. Why? Because I see my life bigger than the moment that I might have with someone. And I understand that a predecision always leads to better. I've never met anyone who said, man, my best decision was in that moment, and it was rash and impulsive. There is no book on the market that is a bestseller. It says your best life is tied to impulsivity. Just do it. Makes a great slogan for shoes, a horrible slogan for life. Because predecision leads to better decision. And it's what David, it's what Daniel understood, and it's what have prevented people like David and Bathsheba and those moments from ever happening, it's what allowed Jesus to walk to the cross because the same word he resolved to go to the cross before any of the pressure of the cross started to push down on him. A predecision leads to better decision. And what flows out of this moment is integrity that's going to mark Daniel's life because it's not the size of the decision, it's the impact of the decision that matters. So what does he do? It says, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men around your age? The king would have my head because of you. That is not a figurative statement. That is actual, true, factual things. The king would cut off your head. He had before. There had been a guy in that role before who had lost a head. Like that's just life in an ancient near eastern kind of kingdom so he's like look daniel i'm willing to help you but dude i die because of your decision and so daniel being a man of integrity says well look test us for 10 days give us nothing but our keto diet of vegetables and water right just give me that and after 10 days if we look worse We'll deal with the, the fallout. We'll let the king know we've refused to eat his food. But just give me 10 days. And after those 10 days, compare our appearance with the other young men who ate the royal food and see and treat us in accordance with that. This is what the story does. 
So he agreed to this test, and he tested them for 10 days, and at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So Daniel, in this act of predecision, when notice what it says. The guard took away their choice food. I think the food was still being presented to them every single day. Now, if you had filet mignon, I mean, if you've ever been to a fair and you walk by and it's greasy and it smells good, I mean, it just, unhealthy food just smells so good for you and good to you. And this is what's being put in front of Daniel every single day, along with, oh, here's your Brussels sprouts and broccoli. Here is your squash. And they smell that, and yet they still eat this. Why? Because a predecision leads to a better decision. And in the process, they begin to look better than even the people who were eating the food that smelled better. And in the process, Daniel this throwaway line at the end of the first chapter, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. For over five decades, Daniel will keep his job in an unprecedented way because the first year of King Cyrus was a whole completely different empire of a completely different people group. You didn't keep your job under a new empire unless you were incredibly valuable. That Daniel, for over five decades, is going to continue to bring significant value to every single king he serves. Even though the other kings had destroyed the previous king's empires. This small decision Daniel makes when he's a teenager sets the stage for all the decisions that Daniel will make over the rest of his life to be faithful and to follow after God. Because what most people don't realize is when you hear the story of Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel is not a 17-year-old in the lion's den. He's an incredibly old man towards the end of his life. And Daniel had had a life of making these decisions beforehand in spite of what it might cost him. And that integrity kept showing up in our world. Now, there's two things I want to point out before we finish up today. Because predecisions lead to better decisions, but sometimes, remember, integrity is about what it costs you. Sometimes what cost and what it cost is a lot. Sometimes what it cost is significant. So I'm going to tell you about my elementary decision. When my daughter was born, who just turned 10 this past year, um, we quickly found out that, you know, as a series of tests were being done, there was a genetic test that came back that was abnormal. And they ordered a second genetic test. About the time when the second genetic test was being ordered, like because my undergrad was in biochem, like, 
those are things that like, you know, I had somebody text me last night an, a scientific article and they were like trying to figure out something. They're like, hey, can you describe to me what this means at some other point? Can you sit down and tell me what reverse transcriptase is? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Because like those aren't like Facebook things for me. Those are actual like enzymes and I understood how they worked. And so I was like, okay, biochemistry is my jam. So doctor, can you tell me what, what it is that you're looking for? Because they just kept using this vague term when they would, and they were like, well, we're looking specifically for this enzyme. This, this specific genetic test that tests whether or not your daughter has the gene for this one enzyme. And I'm like, oh, okay, that enzyme's pretty important. So I start digging into that enzyme because that enzyme is what your body uses to, to digest fat, which is popular contrary to belief. Your body actually needs fat, needs protein, it needs glucose, sugar, and these all three of those, those are your three primary sources of energy. And so I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of a weird, weird thing to have off the table. And then I started realizing the implications if you don't have that enzyme, that it's death. And it's only a question of a death in the first year of their life, a death before the first decade of their life, or a death before they turn 20. So now here I am getting the phone call, and they are saying, oh, the test is still interesting. We need a third test, but we need more blood. And I'm holding, my wife and I are holding down our two-week-old little baby who's having an ungodly amount of blood pulled out of her arm to be sent off to a genetic test somewhere. And this genetic lab gets the results. They finalize them. They haven't called us because they said they would call us on Friday at 4 p.m., and they haven't. So I call them Friday at like 3.50 and I find out that the chief geneticist who's the only one who can read the results has left for the weekend. And I'm like, where does she live? <laughs> where is she going? I mean, I'm okay. I can find her to have this conversation. I also know that you know how to read. Can you just read to me what's on that paper? Because I'm not stupid. I know people who do those little tests, know what those tests mean. Like, I'm sorry, sir, you'll have to wait till Monday. And so that weekend was the longest weekend of my life. And I remember very vividly, after hanging up that phone call, driving home that Friday evening, pulling into the drive, like pulling into the street of the neighborhood we lived at the time, and just stopping my car, and just crying. Because I thought I was going to lose my little girl. And I remember in the midst of the weeping of all the things I thought I might lose because I was like, I get one year, I get 10 years, or I get 18 years. I remember saying this sentence out loud. God, if Monday I find out I only get a year or 10 or 20, I want you to know right now that the day she dies, I'm going to be grateful for the days you gave me. I'm not going to ask you why about the days you didn't. I mean, and it just, just decided in that moment, regardless of what happens, regardless what flows from that conversation, this is what I'm going to do. And it made my weekend so much better. It didn't remove the weight. But I knew that I had anchored myself into someone 
who was bigger than a geneticist's desire to take off early, to go on a weekend retreat somewhere, and the results that whatever kind of sitting there pending on her desk could say about our life. And this was one of the first moments I realized how powerful predecisions were because it changed my posture. Then I realized that no matter what was going to happen that Monday when they called me, that I might lose my daughter, but I wouldn't have lost my faith. Because I had anchored myself into him. And I would already decided what I was going to do. I was going to be grateful for the days I had. Not gripe and complain and be bitter about the days I didn't. And the power of predecision isn't just some thought experiment. It ended up introducing me to a whole new way of living out my life and has probably protected me from some of the worst decisions I would have naturally made on my own. It allowed me to build in guardrails and protections. I decided a long time ago I'm going to live my life like an open book. There is not a single password I have that the people who are closest to me don't. I never delete an email or a text message. Any communication I have ever had with anyone is on a calendar, is in my Evernote, is in my message, because I want it to be very clear to the people who know me the best that I decided a long time ago that if I, if I live my life like an open book, I will never, ever have to live in fear of someone opening up the pages and reading it out loud. That was a predecision I made. It has helped me at times when people have texted me things and I wanted to like digitally slap them back to be like, that will still be there when you die and your kids go through your text messages. And they're like, man, dad was a jerk. And it's protected me from all types of things. That This predecision really does lead to the best decision. Now I know you want to know. Monday I got a phone call and we found out that somehow three different genetic tests, because the, the, what I called the third was actually the fourth, had all been false positives. Something statistically that is so absurd that maybe one day I'll find out it was a miracle. But I, I'm actually okay with not knowing if it was a miracle or not because I had pre-decided regardless what happened. I was anchored. And this is exactly what's at the key part of Daniel. I don't know if you noticed this, but the very book opens with Daniel writing these words. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, being Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was a defeated, captive slave taken from his homeland and forbidden from speaking the language of mama and dada that he'd grown up with. And yet he had a view of life that allowed him to be anchored into someone who was unchanging, who was still victorious, even in the midst of his defeat. Daniel understood that while Nebuchadnezzar thought Marduk had done the victory, Daniel would realize that God held all things in the palm of his hand. And that God had allowed this to happen 
And I'm convinced that Daniel's confidence in anchoring in, in God allowed him to make that pre-decision. Now you may say, well, that's just a religious thing. Your story is just a religious person's thing. No, it's a human thing because you have something you're anchored into too. I don't know what it is, but I know you have it. And here's how you would know it. If you lost it tomorrow, you would be undone because of it. It may be your reputation. It may be a something, not a someone. It may be your job, your money. It may be your house. It may be your possessions. It may be your family. It could be religion. But all of us have anchored into something. And what Daniel understood was that Daniel was anchored into the very someone that was the only one that was worth anchoring to. That no matter what he walked through, he knew who was walking through it with him. And that allowed him. I don't think Daniel understood or knew what the decision would look like in the aftermath. But here's what I can tell you. There are some of you that need to hear this. On the other side of that predecision is this moment. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. There is a now God that sometimes resides on the other side of that difficult, hard predecision. Of you stepping in, not sure how it's going to play out, but knowing that even if you have to pay the full cost, it's worth it to you. Because you're anchored. You're grounded. You're secure. But that anchoring and security actually sets the stage for sometimes your best moments ever. I never knew how deep my faith was until the moment I said those words out loud to him. Because I realized for the rest of my life, I could lose my wife, I could lose my kids, I can lose my job, I can lose everything, and I still would be okay even if it's not okay. That predecision that I made a long time ago helped me to navigate the last couple of years with all the craziness and insanity of the world playing out. It helped me to navigate when I was looking at my news feed and I'm like, holy moly, are we about to step into World War III this past week with what's playing out in Ukraine? That predecision hasn't just led to better decisions. It's led to a better life. One that's allowed me to be free of some of the regrets that could easily have marked me had I not made that decision in the first place. And I'm saying to some of you, you're on the precipice of decisions that you don't even know that if you lean in and walk by faith that now God could show up. You may be walking through a period of singleness in your life where you're absolutely convinced because of your standards and your commitment to a certain type of person that you are now sure does not exist on any app, on any website, or in any place, period. And you feel the temptation to surrender, to sacrifice, to, to kind of fudge the standards you have. That on the other side of your predecision can be a now God moment. Some of you may be standing in a place of financial just absolute ruin and your continued 
trust and faithfulness and dependence on God through this season and the way that you're honoring him is setting the stage for your now God moment. Some of you have been sending us prayer requests through the app and some of you are walking in the now God moment. Some of you in this room emailed me this week because two weeks ago you weren't sure about this thing and now you're walking in this place with this security and this confidence because now God. But you don't get now God until you've decided beforehand what you're going to do. And so I don't know about you. I don't know what it would be that would undo you. But I hope you do. And I hope for the sake, the, the sake of your integrity and for the sake of our world that you answer that question. You lean into that question. And in the course of leaning into it, start to walk with the faith and expectation that now God can step into it too. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your grace and your mercy, I pray that you would meet us in this final moments we have together, that you would bring clarity to us in the, the decisions that we would need to make. God, that you would give us insight to the decisions that we could make that would undo us if we made them. And help us to build around ourselves and in our lives the pre-decisions that could lead to the better decisions to the better life in pursuit of you, God. And I pray that you would meet us here today, that you would give us the perspective and the scope and the size of who you are that Daniel had to give us the confidence to move forward in those predecisions that we should make and the strength to make the decisions in the moments that we've already decided that we will make. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. So t-